0: Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 19, Hebrews 7 verses 11 through 19, and considering an everlasting priesthood, give attention to God's holy word. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law, for he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident that if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word, and we thank you also for the fulfillment of your word in the person and work of the Lord Jesus and his great work on the cross on our behalf. We praise you also, Lord, that you have, in the name of Christ and in the reward for his finished work, promised and given the Holy Spirit to men. We pray now that during this time of preaching, you would pour out the Holy Spirit into our hearts that we might see and hear, and that we might feel and know the power of the cross of Christ, and in knowing his power, we might see your glory. And we pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Some of you are probably familiar with a very popular book that came out, I think, probably sometime in the 90s, and it gained a lot of currency in the Christian world and in the broader secular world in the 2000s. And this book was written by a man named Rick Warren, and perhaps you know the book, The Purpose Driven Life. Now, there's things we could say about Rick Warren and the way he does church, and there's problems there. I don't want to really get into that, but I just want to bring to your mind the title of his book, The Purpose Driven Life. The reason his book resonated so much with American society and the American church is because all of us recognize, at one level, there's got to be a point to all of this. Why are we doing what we're doing? What is the point of our lives? Why has God given us life? What is the purpose of life? And Rick Warren, trying to answer that question, wrote his book. Now, this is true. We need to know the purpose. We need to know the point. We need to understand what this thing is for if we're going to profit from it. In the passage that we're going to look at, this is the question that the author asks of his audience. He's going to ask the question, what's the point? What accomplishes the goal? What actually achieves the purpose intended? Now his subject matter here is going to be priesthood. And the question he's going to ask is, what is the goal of a priesthood? Now, as we think about this question and as we're going to get into this passage, I think oftentimes when we ask, what's the purpose, we we tend to focus on the activities. If I were to ask you, what does a priest do? You might answer me the way a lot of dictionaries answer it. A priest is a uh, religious person who performs ceremonies of a certain type. That's generally what a priest does. Either a Jewish priest or a Catholic priest or an Orthodox priest, even a pagan priest. There's some type of religious person who performs all of these activities. But you see, that doesn't answer the purpose of the priesthood. That doesn't tell us what the goal of all of the mumbo-jumbo, hocus-pocus, and ceremonies that priests perform it's only in understanding what the goal of the priesthood is that we begin to appreciate the priesthood of Christ. Now, the way that the author is going to approach this question is he's dealing with two priesthoods in the Old Testament. And, and the purpose of this passage, what he's going to tell us and what we're going to learn is that the goal of priesthood is accomplished only through the order of Melchizedek, which no one can fulfill except he who has everlasting life. The goal of priesthood is accomplished only through the order of Melchizedek. And nobody can occupy that priesthood except he who has an everlasting life. And the author is going to do this in a particular way that we need to pay attention to. As we look at this passage, we're going to break down his argument into three things. There's three things here. First, there's a dilemma. He presents us and his audience with a dilemma in verse 11. And then in verses 12 through 19a... I don't often like dividing verses like that, but in this one, 19 is unfortunately placed. That's not the best place for 19. In verses 12 through 19a, he demonstrates the conclusion. And then in the rest of verse 19, he gives us devotion. And so in verse 11, we had a dilemma. In verses 12 through 19a, we had a demonstration. And then in 19b, we have a devotion. Dilemma, demonstration, and devotion. And so as we begin, we notice that he gives us a dilemma. Well, the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, what is a dilemma? You've probably faced personal dilemmas in your life. You have to choose this or you have to choose that, and neither of these options are good. Neither of these options are what you would want, but you've got to choose one or the other. Technically speaking, a dilemma is an argument. Now, what I mean by argument here is a logical argument, not a shouting match. It's an argument that forces one to choose between two unfavorable options. This is often called being stuck on the horns of a dilemma. And so the author here presents a dilemma to his audience, and the two options that are being presented here are, on the one hand, You can stick with the Levitical priesthood. His audience are observant Jews that were converted to Christianity. And the general context of the whole letter is that there's persecution coming upon Christians. And these uh, Hebrews that he's writing to, we'll learn later on, have already suffered a serious bout of persecution. They've already suffered once for Christ. They're about to suffer again, probably worse than the first time. And so the first option they have is, let's just go back to the Levitical priesthood. Let's go back to Judaism. Because in Judaism, it's politically safe. At this time in the Roman Empire, Judaism was a lawful religion. It was recognized by the Roman Empire as a legitimate religious expression. And so Jews, who were observant Jews, legally could not be prosecuted for being Jews. So it's politically safe. You might say it's politically correct. If they remain Jews and don't depart into Christianity they will be politically safe. However the Levitical priesthood does not accomplish perfection. The Levitical priesthood cannot make you perfect. The other option they have is choose the Melchizedek priesthood. Become a become religious observers of the Melchizedek priesthood, which is another way of saying the priesthood of Christ, follow the Melchizedek priesthood, which does bring in perfection, but comes with persecution and danger. These are the two options that the the author presents us with. These are the two options for the people of that time. And I just want to help you understand how timely this dilemma is in all ages of the church, especially... In our age. You see, in every age of the church, in every age of society, politics is an outgrowth of religion. There is no such thing as a religiously neutral state. Every magistrate has a religious worldview they operate from, and their goal in the way that they run their government is to bring everybody into conformity to the religious worldview. Now, in our modern day, it might be easy to not recognize this, because what does our state profess? It professes to be religiously neutral. It, it professes to be secular. All they're concerned about is prosperity, health, wealth. They don't want to say anything about religion. There's a separation between church and state, didn't you know? However, this is not true. Look at what's going on in society. Woke ideology, Marxist critical theory, is the religion of today. And what you're seeing across the board is Christians faced with this dilemma. If you remain a Bible-believing Christian, you will achieve perfection in God's sight. But it will be politically dangerous. But if you go with the Marxist religion, if you go with woke Christianity, it will be politically safe. You will not suffer persecution for that. And so the dilemma is one that presents itself to us at all times in the age of the church. The author presents this to us. This brings us then to the next question. What is the perfection that he speaks about? Look at the language he uses. He says, therefore, if perfection... Well, through the Levitical priesthood, why is there another priest according to the order of Melchizedek? So we have to answer the question, what is this perfection he's speaking about? And this perfection is what I introduced us with. It's the goal of the priesthood. This is uh, a catch-all term that denotes what is the point of the priestly mediation? What is it trying to accomplish? Well, the author calls it here, perfection. Uh, Now, keep in mind that that priesthood is used in this passage in a technical sense. He's speaking about the idea of a priesthood and what that ministry is meant to accomplish. We might say that uh, a hammer, the perfection of a hammer is to drive nails. The, The perfection of a blanket is to cover you at night and the the goal of the priesthood is to bring about perfection this word in verse 11 is a very important word in the book of hebrews it's based on the greek word telos perhaps you've heard that word before it's a very important word in not only greek philosophy but also in the new testament telos simply means goal or end we have the same idea in the westminster shorter catechism What is the chief end of man? You could say, what is the chief telos of man? And so this word is based on this. It means to accomplish the intended goal or to fulfill a purpose. As I mentioned, this word is critical throughout the book of Hebrews. No need to turn there. I just want to survey very briefly some of these passages where this word is found. In chapter 2, verse 10, we find that Christ was Perfected, Same word. Again in uh, chapter 5 verse 9 and chapter 7 verse 28. It should be right there in front of you. Um, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Same word in Greek. Chapter 7 verse 19, we're going to see it later on in this passage. The Old Testament law made nothing perfect but the bringing in of a better hope does chapter 9 verse 11 heaven is called the better tabernacle Uh, chapter 9 verse 11 christ came as the high priest of good things to come with greater and with the greater and more perfect tabernacle chapter 11 verse 40 it says that the old testament saints are not perfected without the new testament saints Chapter 12, verse 2, Christ's example is, the, uh, is perfect. He's the author and perfecter of our faith in that he accomplishes what we're all striving for. He has achieved, and so he's called the perfecter of our faith. And in chapter 12, verse 23, we learn about the saints who have died and gone to heaven. They are the spirits of just men made perfect. Same word that we have in chapter 7, verse 11 a very important term in this book so the question is what is this perfection now on the one hand many think and it would be easy to think this means full forgiveness of sins some think that when he says perfection it means that you individually are fully cleansed from all of your sins you have been made perfect in christ Some might say this is, you hear the phrase, sinless perfection. That actually is not what the term means in the book of Hebrews. You see, sinlessness, sinless perfection, for you and I, is something we don't enjoy until glory. And the perfection that the author is speaking about, the the dilemma he's presenting before the Hebrews and before us... Is a perfection we enjoy now. It's a perfection that we are participants in today, not in the future. So, sinless perfection is is not what's meant here. What is meant, and, and what I think is the better understanding, is that perfection means full reconciliation between God and man. The perfection that is spoken about, the goal of the priesthood, the whole purpose of the sacrifice of Christ and his everlasting mediation in heaven, is that you have unhindered access to your Father. That is perfection. That's the perfection the author is speaking about. The forgiveness of sins is required for this. You do have to have your sins forgiven. You do have to be made holy in God's sight. But the forgiveness of sins is not an end of itself. The goal of the gospel is not so that you personally will be cleansed. It's so that you personally, having been cleansed, can dwell in the presence of your Father. That you can go back to the God whom we sinned against in Adam. That we who once were exiles have been redeemed and reconciled to God in Christ. That is perfection. And this is the end of the priesthood. This is the whole point of the priestly ministry. The end of the priesthood is union and communion between God and man. You see a hint at this in verse 19 of our passage. The law made nothing perfect. Same word. But the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we draw near to God. And so this is the perfection that he is speaking about. Again, if the Levitical priesthood accomplished this, why is there another priesthood? If if Levi did this, there's no reason for a replacement. There's no point. There's no purpose. But because there is a replacement, Levi is not the end. The Levitical priesthood can't do what the priesthood was meant to do. Now I want you to notice first, or at least just at this point, he's not saying the Levitical priesthood was bad or evil. He's not saying the Levitical priesthood was wicked. He's saying it's insufficient. He's saying it was not meant to accomplish the goal. He's saying, it's not enough. Furthermore, he's going to prove in the demonstration that we're moving towards, it was never meant to be the final priesthood. It was never meant to be the end of God's dealings with man. And so he presents this dilemma to us as he presents it to his readers. Understand, brothers and sisters, Blessings of Christ are perfect and complete. And they are the very thing that your soul needs. Everything that Christ gives to you is exactly what you need to live today and forever. However, just as in their day, so also in our day, increasingly, we're presented with a dilemma. Dilemma. Will we follow the religion that is politically safe? Or will we follow the religion that is spiritually saving? Many times throughout history, those two things are in opposition. And we all have to settle it in our consciences. Will we follow the priesthood of Christ? Come what may. Or will we, in the face of persecution, danger, being ostracized, rejected by society... Turn to a politically safe religion. This is the dilemma we're all presented with. And to prove his point now, he moves into his demonstration. Now, first off, again, we have to define what is a demonstration. Sometimes a demonstration might mean, um, you know, uh, uh, one of my children might make a thing out of Legos that does something, and he says, Daddy, let me show you what I did. And he demonstrates the thing. That's one definition of a demonstration. Another definition, and, and the way I'm using it here in a very technical sense, a demonstration is the process of giving a conclusive proof. In logical reasoning, and that's what the author is doing here, a demonstration is conclusive proof. Once a demonstration has been given, and if the demonstration is sound, the the question is answered. There's no more questioning. It's been conclusively proven. This is different than a probable proof. In other words, what the author is doing, he's not saying that it might be the case that Melchizedek is better than Levi, but I guess we'll never really know. You just have to follow your own choice. Nor is he necessarily trying to be persuasive here. He's not trying to be persuasive in the sense of using fancy rhetoric. He's simply giving a logical demonstration, a conclusive proof. The nature of a demonstration is that it closes the door to any other conclusion than what was demonstrated. That's the nature of the way the Bible's reasoning here. Now, I realize I'm going a little hot. I'm going kind of heavy with this kind of language. But I, I just want to say this to you. To show you the importance of this. The Westminster Confession of Faith speaks of good and necessary consequence as one of the ways that we arrive at doctrines. We, in our day, tend not to think that way when it comes to religion. We we tend to think, uh, in religion, beyond the basics, God is uh, God is the creator of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is His Son, and if you believe in Him, you'll have the Holy Spirit and enjoy glory forever. Beyond the basics of Christianity, we tend to uh, we tend to not think this way. We, we, we tend to leave things in the realm of probabilities rather than in the realm of demonstration. But the scriptures demonstrate clearly the truths of the gospel. This is how, one of the ways, scripture reasons with us and how we ought to reason with scripture. We're going to see it here. And here, what the author is demonstrating is that the Levitical priesthood was intended to be changed. Which implies a change of the law of qualification. Notice how he does this in verse 12. He begins and says, For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there's also a change of the law. Now, what he's speaking about here when he says the law, it's going to come up later on in verse 19. The law refers to the entire Mosaic system. refers to the whole covenant made with Moses and to the Levitical priesthood as the personification of the Old Covenant. Think about it like this. If you go back and look at the Old Testament... There are numerous books, numerous pages, numerous chapters, numerous verses in the Old Testament. But if you want to understand the Old Testament in one simple image, that would be the high priest, the son of Aaron. He was the personification of the whole Old Testament system. That's how the author is reasoning here. He's speaking about the priest who is the representative of the Old Testament, he is changed. Therefore, the law must change as well. Now, the particular law he's dealing with is the law of qualification. Notice what he says. There's a change of the law in verse 13. He of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. In the Old Testament, the priesthood by law was restricted to the tribe of Levi, and within that tribe it was restricted to the sons of Aaron. As the author mentions here, and as is proven throughout the scriptures, the Lord Jesus Christ came from the tribe of Judah. So according to the law of Moses, Christ is disqualified from being a high priest. He's not qualified according to the law of Moses, and yet, Psalm 110 says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You see, the order of Aaron had a certain law that governed who could serve. Only the sons of Aaron could be high priest. The order of Melchizedek has a different law, a different qualification dictating who can serve in that office, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so this change in the priesthood, implies the change of law and now in verse 15 the author moves through his demonstration and says in in essence moses said nothing about the tribe of judah and then in verse 15 and yet it's far more evident that another priest arises after the order of melchizedek who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment that's the tribe of levi that's the sons of Aaron. That's the law that I was referring to. He moves on and says, this priest doesn't come according to that law, according to a law that is carnal, meaning focused on carnal realities, physical descent from Aaron. But he comes according to the power of an endless life. He comes according to the power of Of an endless life, and he quotes Psalm 110, for he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Notice what he's focusing on in verse 17, in the quote from Psalm 110. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is where the author is getting the idea of an endless life. Because in the, in the command, that or the oath, that promotes Christ to this priesthood, the reason given is that he has the power of an everlasting life. This is exactly what the author pointed out about the narrative of Melchizedek. Just back one page in chapter 7, verse 3. When the author begins to interpret the priesthood of Melchizedek, he says, Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. And so the first Melchizedek, if we can put it that way, shows up and he has the power of an endless life. That means the second Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus Christ, also has to have the power of an endless life to be qualified he goes on then in verse 18 and explains this change he says on the one hand there's an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness there's an annulling of the commandment because it is weak and unprofitable and then at the end of uh, the beginning of verse 19, he gives the reason for this. For the law made nothing perfect. Now here we need to understand a little bit about the teaching of the law in the scriptures. First off, he says that the uh, law made nothing perfect first because this never was the purpose of the law. The Old Testament law and the law of Moses was never given. To accomplish perfection. Remember what perfection is. Full reconciliation between God and man. The law's purpose was never to do that. Paul says in Romans chapter 10 verse 4. That the Jews have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. And then he says in verse 4 for Christ. To, turn there with me. This is an important verse to look at. Romans 10:4. Starting in verse 1, Paul is writing about his brethren after the flesh. Romans 10, 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Now notice carefully. <laughs> Christ is the telos. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Notice what Paul is saying. He's not saying that Christ terminates the law. He's saying that the law's telos, its purpose and goal, was always the Lord Jesus Christ. That the teaching of the law is the teaching of Christ. As we've seen in John, throughout the Gospel of John, Christ says to the Jews again and again, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Because he wrote of me. And so the end of the law is the Lord Jesus Christ. The law perfected nothing because it was never intended to perfect nothing. Uh, It was never intended to perfect anything. Pardon me. Now, misunderstanding this is the source of many of the errors of religion. Misunderstanding the purpose and place of the law is the source of numerous errors in the religious landscape of probably your personal life, but also of the church broadly. One, many people like the Jews approach the law, as if it could bring perfection. Many people look at the law of Moses and the commands of Scripture and think, I have got to obey these things because in obeying this law, I will be perfected. That's what we call legalism. Just like the Jews, legalism today is an error. It's a misunderstanding of the law. On the other hand, there are those who recognize the law cannot perfect you. And because the law cannot perfect you, they ignore it. They, they have no time for it because they'll say, well, the law cannot save you, so it's not relevant for our lives today. This is what we call anti-nomianism. Now, I would normally say that's a 50-cent word, but with inflation, that's a $5 word. That's a $5 theological word, and what it means is against the law. Contrary to the law. Opposed to the law. Anti, opposed, nomos, law, antinomianism. Both of these are errors. Legalism, because the law cannot perfect you antinomianism because the law is relevant for what its purpose is and its purpose is to bring you to Christ and teach you how to live under the grace of Christ I love Martin Luther's illustration perhaps some of you have heard it Martin Luther illustrates he says that the law of God is the stick that drives you to Christ and then it's the cane on which you walk the path of Christ that's what the law of God is. It's the stick that drives you to Christ, and it's the the, the walking stick that you use to walk unto glory. Now, it's important at this point to, to highlight these things because the author of Hebrews says the law perfected nothing. The law made nothing perfect. And in his demonstration, just to review what he's saying. The Levitical priesthood could not bring in perfection. That's why there's another priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is a priest according to the power of an endless life. And the reason this happens is because Levi and the Old Testament law could not bring about this perfection. And now he's going to lead into, having done the demonstration, he's now going to lead into the devotion. But before we get there,
1: I realize that this
0: last section we've gone through here has been pretty heavy on reasoning and logic and and some of these areas of thought. We have to understand that God made our minds rational. Your mind is meant to work in a logical fashion. Much doctrine in the scriptures comes about through a process of reasoning. Oftentimes, a mistake in doctrine is a mistake in logic. Sometimes we're just not thinking the right way about God's word. Here's one example related directly to what the author's using here. Dispensationalism and a, a view that the nation of Israel as a geopolitical entity that somehow has special blessings promised by God is a mistake of logic. That's not what the Old Testament teaches. That's not what the law of Moses teaches. That's not what any of the scriptures teach about the nation of Israel. What it does teach is that God made promises and gave the nation of Israel laws. Those promises and those laws, as Paul says, were for the purpose of leading them to Christ. And unless they accept Christ, they have none of God's favor. But if they do accept Christ, they will re-enter his favor, as Romans chapter 11 says. God is able to graft them back in to the olive tree. And so with these mistakes of thinking, we can mistake in our doctrines. We can also mistake in our lives. Sometimes a mistake in life is an unwillingness to follow the logic of Scripture. It's an unwillingness to recognize what the Scriptures are clearly teaching. Now some don't know what the Scriptures teach. They're simply ignorant. Some don't know. Some do know, and they are unwilling to follow. We have to be on our guard as you read the Scriptures, and as the logic of the Scriptures convicts you or encourages you to respond according to what the Scriptures are saying. When the Scriptures say things like, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, be humble don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. You need to be humble. doesn't matter what else is going on in your life. The, 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 the duty that you have under the grace of Christ is to humble yourself. Likewise, when the Scriptures come with promises, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you part of the whomsoever? Have you called on the name of the Lord? Then you will be saved. None of us are special cases. Praise the Lord. As one of my professors said, the Lord Jesus Christ is an expert at working with sinners because he has nothing else to work with. And so when the promises of the scriptures are made to sinners unto salvation, that is for you if you call upon the name of the Lord and you take comfort and strength from that. So we have to follow the logic of the scriptures. Well, he's given us a dilemma. He, he's he's dealing with some very deep doctrines. He's dealing with some very heavy scriptural exegesis and comparison. And if we left it at this point, we would not get the full picture of what he wants us to know. We would not enjoy the perfection he's speaking about. That's why he now comes to devotion in the second half of verse nineteen. Definitions are good for us, and so we've defined dilemma, we've defined demonstration. We need to define devotion. Devotion comes from a Latin word, which means to consecrate. That's what devotion means. To be consecrated to something. Devotion, then, is our consecrated, meaning sanctified, set apart, our consecrated habit of life. Founded upon the person and work of Christ and reaching towards final union and communion with God the Father. Let me read that one again. Devotion is your consecrated habit of life. Founded upon the person and work of Christ and reaching for the final union and communion with God the Father. That is devotion. And devotion is the necessary element of your doctrines doctrine without devotion is cold and dead devotion without doctrine is blind zeal you know i have a fireplace in my house many of you probably have a fireplace as well and my fireplace is is relatively well built it's got um bricks that have all been cut precisely and it has the right amount of mortar between the bricks. It's all very precisely laid out. Much like doctrine, isn't it? Doctrine has to be logically precise. It has to be laid out in the right order. It has to be balanced so the whole thing doesn't fall over. The bricks of the fireplace are like your doctrines. But bricks without a fire are cold and hard and they give no life. On the other hand, your devotion is like the fire. And, and it burns and gives light to the whole house. You can cook food on it. You can boil water with it. You can simply enjoy the warmth and the sight of a fire. But if the fire is not put in the fireplace, it will burn the house down. And so your doctrines need the fires of devotion to give heat and life. But your fire needs to be in the context of your doctrines to control it and keep it in its proper place. You know, the Puritans said, doctrine is practical, and practice is doctrinal. Doctrines are practical. This doctrine of the priesthood of Christ, the perfection that the Melchizedekian order brings in, is extremely practical. And we're going to see how it's practical right here. The doctrine that we've been examining is the priesthood of Christ and that it brings in the final perfection that a priesthood is meant to bring in. The devotion and the practice that gives light and heat and life to this doctrine is prayer. Prayer is the practice that reflects the priesthood of Christ. Notice how the author says this in verse 19. First off, the basis is hope. Look at what he says. 19a, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope. The implication is, law makes nothing perfect. The bringing in of a better hope does make everything perfect. That's the contrast that's implied. The law can't do this, but this better hope can. This better hope is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Acts chapter 28, verses 20 through 23, Paul calls Jesus Christ and his finished work of death and resurrection the hope of Israel. In Colossians 2, verse 10, Paul is writing to the Colossians and he says that in the Lord Jesus Christ, the fullness of the the Godhead dwells bodily and you are complete in him. This better hope is the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. This is the basis of now what he says at the end of verse 19. Look at what he says. But the bringing in of a better hope through which, through that hope, we draw near to God. Brothers and sisters, let me feed your hearts a little bit. With maybe a little bit of devotion and fire. The basis of your relationship with God is the perfection of Christ, not your obedience to the law. That's the point he's making here. The law does not perfect you in God's sight. The better hope does. Brothers and sisters, God looks upon you with favor. Not because of how well you obey the law. God looks upon you with fatherly kindness and joy and rejoicing because of the perfection of Christ. Because of the better hope that the law could not accomplish. That is the basis of your relationship. That is why God favors you. That is why God is for you. No matter what the Roman emperor might do, no matter what the President of the United States might do, no matter what the Marxists and all the demonic forces in the world can muster against you, God is for you because of the perfection of Christ. That's the foundation, brothers and sisters. Never forget it. Rejoice in it. Delight in it. But also live according to it. Notice now what he says. The better hope through which we draw near to God. You know, I have, a, I have something that I've been teaching my children that when we have to discipline them, which does happen, don't need to, don't want to burst your bubbles. But often when I'm, I'm teaching them in, in my discipleship encounter with them, my discipline encounter, I have to teach them and remind them, Jesus Christ saves us by the cross. But the next question is just as important. How do we enjoy the cross? See, I'm confident that every person in this room would tell me, Jesus Christ has saved me by the cross. Amen and amen. That's a better hope. But the way that you enjoy that cross the way that you feel its warmth, the way that you feel its saving power, the way that your heart is transformed by the cross is only through prayer. It's only through drawing near to God. James says in chapter 4, verse 8, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Draw near to God in prayer, and He will come near to you with His glory and His light and His life. You know, we sang in the song Abide With Me and one of the verses in there is is just beautiful. It says that all around me I see change and decay. And then, then the song says O you who changes not. This is why you need to draw near to God, brothers and sisters. Isaiah chapter 40 speaks about God as the everlasting, the unchangeable, the one who never faints nor is weary, whose years are without end. And then he says, even the young men will fail. Old men will grow weary. But those who trust in the Lord and draw near to him will mount up with the wings of eagles. Brothers and sisters, you cannot live this life. You don't have it in you. But God gives it to you through his son. And it's yours for the taking through prayer. Psalm 72, the author is looking around at the prosperity of the wicked and he's chastising himself, saying, I was envious of the wicked because they're prosperous, they're safe, they're not persecuted. And I thought, why am I consecrating myself? Why am I being a Christian? Why am I living according to the law of God? And then he wakes up. And he says, it's good for me to draw near to God. And he says, all those who depart from God will be destroyed. Brothers and sisters, prayer is the devotion that gives life to your doctrines. Let me encourage you, wherever you are in your life, whatever you're dealing with, relationships, sins, difficult questions, maybe you're riding on the clouds. Maybe you're standing on the heights of Lebanon and God has been blessing you without cease for the last part of your life wherever you are in your life you will only improve it by praying more and more earnestly and let me give you this last practical advice on prayer good prayer let me say it this way prayer is not improved By adding more quantity. Prayer is not improved by adding more time to it. Prayer is improved by having a better quality of prayer. The type of prayer that you engage in is what makes it better. Not the uh, increasing amount of prayer. And the quality of prayer that he gives us here is what we all need to keep in mind. When you pray, privately, in your families, or in public under the leadership of your ministers, you are drawing near to God. The living and eternal God is drawing near to you. And your hearts are raised out of this shadowy realm of death and caused to look upon the light of heaven as God communes with us through prayer. Pray, brothers and sisters, because Christ is your priest and he has brought in perfection that only he can. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the priesthood of Christ and we marvel at your infinite wisdom that even under the hands of Moses you instructed your church, and the world, that the intention was always for Christ to accomplish. We thank you that we have been made partakers of this perfection, and we ask you you to cause us to enjoy this perfection through consecrated prayer, through a more devoted life, uniting and communing with you until one day finally, finally, We behold your glory face to face, and we ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.